Glory to Jesus Christ. Glory forever. Okay, welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. And we started last time, step number seven, on joy-making mourning or compunction, or sometimes the word panthos is used. And we are on page 112, starting with paragraph 13. And, uh, and so this is kind of mourning over one's sin, uh, though that is directed in a very personal way toward Christ. It's not something that's impersonal. It's not a, it's something that would lead to despondency or despair, but back to Christ and to that intimacy with him, as well as the healing that that brings. And so ultimately, it is exactly how John describes it, a joy-making mourning. The tears might be shed, but they are cleansing tears and that they are healing for us. And so, again, we're picking up with paragraph 13. Do not be like those who, bearing their dead, first lament over them and then get drunk for their sake. But be like the prisoners in the mines who are flogged every hour by the gallows. So, is it gallers or goalers? I don't know how to, anybody know? Help me out there. G-A-O-L-E-R-S. Uh, we call it jailers. Huh? Jailers. 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 Oh, jailers. Jailers. oh is that mm. what it would be? Mm. Yes. I see. Thank you. Uh, just an alternative spelling. Then. Uh, archaic spelling. But in any case, uh, so in mourning for the dead, not then to shift one's focus uh, towards getting drunk. So not turning back to the things of the world to comfort oneself, but turning and remaining turning towards God. And uh, so he compares it here then of those in the minds who would be constantly pressed into this labor by the jailers uh, to continue the work of, of mourning. And so not to let off of it uh, while we are within this world. And, uh, and so it's a hard thing, I think, to see ourselves in this constant state of mourning, uh, that this is a state of blessedness, especially in light of the Beatitudes, that uh, it is the path to joy for us. And so we would want to remain upon this path, knowing that it is something that is healing, that it is something that prevents us from turning back to our sin, uh, but that all ultimately brings us into the embrace of God himself. And so we don't want to see it uh, in a kind of harsh fashion, or as, a, as we've mentioned, a, a kind of raw emotionalism where we are whipping ourselves up into a kind of a, an emotional state, but not really having it bear fruit for us spiritually. And so we, we will hear warning after warning uh, as we go along in the text uh, that one isn't putting on an act, that this has something to do with a true sorrow for one's sin and having turned away from the preciousness of the gift that God has given, given to us. Number 14, 
He who sometimes mourns and sometimes indulges in luxury and laughter is like one who stones the dog of sensuality with bread. In appearance, he is driving it away, but in fact, he is encouraging it to be constantly with him. So an interesting image, John is always wonderful about this, offering these images that really stick uh, in the mind and make it easy to hold on to his teaching. So the image of indulging in luxury and laughter, becoming focused upon uh, the things of this world or entering into a state uh, pleasing ourselves by the things of this world uh, rather than focusing upon God. And he says to do this is akin to throwing bread at dogs. So trying to chase them away, but you're actually encouraging them to stay with you. And so things such as uh, hypersensuality, you know, this uh, kind of lustfulness, that mourning, sorrow for one's sin is always going to make us attentive to where our thoughts uh, are taking us. And when perhaps the passion of lust is, is pulling us uh, to objectify ourselves or others, uh, you know, to be in a constant state of mourning uh, is also then to be attentive uh, to continually driving away that which will pull us away from God. And so again, uh, I think a much different view uh, of mourning than we, we, we typically have that it's a spiritual toll for us and something that we are to actively foster. And so it's not something that we uh, sort of passively uh, await uh, to emerge, but that by the way that we live our life and by this penitent and repentant spirit, we seek to foster hearts that are constantly turning away from sin and self toward God. And uh, it's mourning that allows us to stay upon that path of repentance. Any comments so far? Okay. Be concentrated without self-display, withdrawn into your heart. For the demons fear concentration as thieves fear dogs. So John brings up dogs a lot <laughs> within his text. And uh, dogs aren't, weren't considered like the, the friendly companions that they are now. You know, I think dogs were much more like scavengers and pests back then than what they are considered now, you know, to be parts of the family. And so you, you see him use this image a lot. Uh, but this idea of being concentrated without self-display, so being attentive to the spiritual life, watchful of mind and thoughts, remembering God constantly, but not placing oneself on display so that others might see it. Uh, so in this state of mourning, one is not going around with uh, a sad uh in a you know kind of sad demeanor or sad look on one's face uh, that uh, following Christ's teaching, uh, especially in the gospel that we hear on Ash Wednesday, 
uh, about, you know, if you're fasting, wash your face so that others cannot see that you're fasting. That similarly with mourning or this concentration upon God, attentiveness to the things that lead us to him, we aren't making a display of ourselves before others. Well, and, uh, and John tells us that this is something that's feared by the demons, that when we stay within the heart, the cell, remain in our cell, that's where we begin to learn the things of God and begin to desire them more and more. It's when we are constantly going out of ourselves and we lose that concentration that we begin to lose something of that desire for God, the intensity of our longing for uh, purity of heart, our longing for prayer. Uh, and so the more we become dissipated, the more vulnerable we become uh, to the attacks of the demons and to temptations, the more that we stay concentrated uh, on what's going on within the heart, but most importantly, attentive to God, the, the more the demons fear this. Because then, uh, you know, there's a kind of imperviousness to the kinds of temptations that they would bring upon us throughout the, the day or the kinds of distractions that we would be open to. Anthony writes, there's a kind of little dog mentioned in the book of Tobit. The thieves break in to steal, but the watchdog of concentration scares them away, maybe. Yes, the watchdog of, of concentration. I think that's uh, exactly what it would be, you know, that uh, any movement uh, of the demons or thoughts or temptations would prick the ears of these watchdogs. They would be attentive on our, uh, on our behalf. And this, so this is what we want to foster internally, this, this level of, of awareness and of attentiveness to what's going on within. And I, I think when, whenever one first might read the fathers, it might seem uh, that that would be uh, a rather unhappy life, or that if one lived in this, with this level of concentration, uh, that it would be kind of lifeless. A lifeless kind of existence uh, or emotionless. And I don't think that's the case. I think what, what we hear from the fathers is that it allows for a kind of freedom to be attentive to the things that are most beautiful and most good about our life as human beings, especially in our life in a relationship to others and the, the life and love that we can have in our relationship with others as well as God. And so there is a kind of joyfulness that should be uh, a part of the Christian's character, that even while we are mourning over our sin, what is made manifest to the world is something of the joy of the kingdom, especially if this mourning is lead, leading us back to God. And so we often see within the saints, uh, you know, two that I think I'm most familiar with in regards to this state would be Mother Teresa and St. Philip Neri, you know, a special patron that, you know, lived in this life of deep prayer and watchfulness of heart. And, uh, and also, uh, you know, perhaps experienced a kind of darkness there, but embodied the joy of the kingdom. And, uh, and began to experience and taste it on some level too. And, um, I was reading earlier today, uh, it was something from uh, St. Ephraim, 
the Syrian, I think it was, that was talking about this in, in particular, um, you know, of staying in this kind of joyful state and not directing uh, this kind of aggression or anger towards, towards others. And so we might have this kind of insensitive faculty that's directed towards our sin and concentration that leads us to seek to put it down quickly. But what it gives birth to is the joy of the kingdom, a kind of freedom. Okay. Number 15, or number 16, it is not to a wedding banquet that we have been called here, certainly not, but he who has called us has called us here to mourn for ourselves. And so, you know, I think, you know, understanding the nature of the Holy Eucharist and entering into this relationship with the heavenly bridegroom, we want to have a kind of clarity about that. But I think what John is talking about here is that, you know, while we are living within this world, we are engaged in the spiritual battle and what goes along with it, a period of fasting and penance. And again, if we go back to Christ's teaching on fasting in particular, when he's questioned about his disciples not fasting, they cannot fast now because they have the bridegroom with them. They are engaged in this wedding feast. They have the beloved with them. And so that was the time for feasting. But there would come a time when the bridegroom is taken away, and then they will fast. And so for us, we are in this perpetual state of fasting, of fostering a hunger within our heart for the beloved, uh, more of a state of betrothal uh, that as in anticipating matrimony, as it were, you know, entering into the fullness of that life and love. And we taste something of that and experience the joy of it within the, the sacramental life. But in terms of praxis, in terms of how we practice our faith on a day-to-day -day basis, we are in this constant state of preparing oneself for the wedding feast, preparing the mind and the heart that we might enter into it, a period of waiting. So one might even say, uh, life is a perpetual advent uh, that we are, are waiting for the Lord. And uh, certainly, again, we experience uh, the fruit of that waiting in our experience of the, of the Holy Eucharist. But our life as a whole is this constant movement toward him and waiting like the wise virgins, you know, having our lamps filled with oil and awaiting for the approach of the, of the bridegroom. And so always in this state of preparedness. Daniel Allen. Do you have a question there? Oh, there it is. That makes me think of the wise and foolish virgins. The foolish virgins were told to buy more oil and they wept outside the wedding banquet. Is John playing off that at all, suggesting we must mourn and so acquire more oil before we can enter the wedding feast as wise virgins. Yes, you know, I think uh, to reiterate what I was saying, but I think absolutely that the fathers, we see how the fathers are so deeply immersed in the scriptures, that this was their spiritual reading. And, uh, and so as they envision the spiritual life and what takes place within it, 
uh, it's always in light, I think, of Christ's teaching and how they understand who Christ is for them. And so this state of waiting, vigilance, watchfulness, uh, and the state of the, the wise virgins, you know, of constantly seeking the oil, if you will, and uh, we'll see a little play on words here between oil and mercy that comes up later in the text uh, that I think is important as well, that we, there's something that is healing about this, this oil that we seek for ourselves through the morning and that Christ gives us through his mercy that then prepares us for the kingdom itself. So we'll see as he sort of unpacks it for us as we move on, um, how, how he develops it. Number 17, when, we, when they weep, some force themselves unseasonably to think of nothing at all during this blessed time, not realizing that tears without thought are proper only to an irrational nature and not to a rational one. Tears are the product of thought, and the father of thought is a rational mind. So this is sort of a different approach to things for us in the spiritual life. Because so often we hear of prayer, of taking thoughts captive and directing that thought uh, toward Christ and avoiding uh, sinful thoughts or temptations. But John is saying here that Tears are, are the product of our meditating upon the reality of our sin and our poverty and the loss of grace or the turning away from the beloved. And that it's possible for a person to turn away from that necessary meditation prematurely and for it to become purely, I think, an emotional kind of response and this is where he says it becomes something that is irrational it's not guided or directed uh, by any particular thought and so our meditation upon uh, our own sin and our own poverty is what gives rise to the tears and for me I think that's uh, an important distinction in the sense of avoiding uh, again, a kind of emotionalism, that there is an effective element within the spiritual life, and that is part of being a human being. But John is telling us, in particular, with our making use of something that is on an emotional level, that it is to be guided and directed by our thought, if it's not to lead us astray. And I think that's true as a whole in the spiritual life, that emotion can be something that tells us and reveals to us a certain truth and guides us in a certain direction. Uh, but it is always meant then to be something that is scrutinized by our thought and by reflection in order that it doesn't simply lead us astray. And you know, we often think about it in terms of anger, that anger arises when we are faced with a kind of injustice and so it can lead us in a certain direction to acknowledge that there's something wrong that needs to be addressed. But anger also uh, can be something that is very destructive, that is directed towards others, that is you know, rooted just in an irascible kind of spirit. 
And, uh, and so we need to make sure that that emotion is touched by the, the grace of God and by the truth that we are examining what is going on around us and within our heart, that it doesn't lead us astray. And so th with tears and with mourning, uh, it's a very particular vision of what those tears and mourning are to be for us. Yes, Anthony. Father, is there a psychological element to help us govern these thoughts? Because meditating on all the evil one has done, uh, even the littlest bit, and the evil one can do, uh, and the evil one can do can make one go almost mad. Yeah, you know, I think that's, you know, what why we find within the writings of the fathers this kind of radical personal element to the life of prayer as a whole. And uh, that for us, it's not simply altering our mental state or trying to alter our mental state, but our engagement with the other, with Christ. And so there is a, definitely a psycho psychological element that we have to be careful of here, because you're right, a person, if we were only meditating upon our poverty and our sin, that we could... Uh, uh, spiral downward into a deep despondency and despair. It's only our focus and constant focus upon Christ that prevents us from doing that. Where if it becomes a, a step in movement toward him, rather than simply a step in movement towards the sin itself and focus upon it. And uh, this is why we find even in some of the fathers, you know, a great care and not overly focusing upon thoughts or temptations as they come upon us and moving so quickly to one's focus upon Christ because of the psychological element that the spiritual battle is fundamentally psychological. The demons are putting thoughts before us uh, that give rise then to the passions and they seek to stir up things for us in regards to our thought, the logismoi that we've heard the fathers talk about. And uh, we can be fragmented internally and pulled all over the place unless what is the focus of this whole movement is Christ himself. And so whether it's in mourning over the sin or meditating on our poverty or anything else within the spiritual life, there has to be this radical personal element. And this is what's distinctive about Christianity and Christian spirituality. There are certain elements that, you know, that we might share in terms of certain practices, that there is a kind of almost mantra-like quality that the Jesus prayer has to it, that can create a kind of emotional and psychological peace, stillness. But certainly our engagement in the practice of the Jesus prayer is meant more than to alter our emotional state. And this is what we talked about in the Evercatinos on Monday, that Christianity and Christian spirituality is not self-help. We're not trying to alter our thoughts and our emotions in such a way that we can be more productive or happy within this world. All that we engage in is directed towards the same end, 
and that is that is God to enter into this relationship and enter into it in the way that he's revealed it to us and the way that he's called us to it, to enter into the spiritual battle, to receive him in these concrete and tangible ways and then through the sacramental life that it might not be just notional or emotional, but involve the whole person that is drawn into this relationship with Christ. Because we, we have almost this infinite capacity for uh, uh, falling into illusion or delusion. And, uh, and religious people, and we talked about this before, are capable of, of the deepest kinds of illusion. You know, that convinces us that we are righteous and that we're in this right relationship with God or that we're living a holy life. And uh, it's only by our entering into this relationship with he who is truth that light is shines into the deepest recesses of our minds and our hearts and reveals the truth to us. And that can be very humbling. It can be very unsettling. Uh, it can turn our world upside down, but it's not, we're not engaging in, in this, as I said, to create, to alter our emotional and psychological state. And, you know, Christianity can be that, and the practice of the spiritual life can be that as well. And it existed in Christ's own time. You know, I think uh, tonight uh, during the uh, divine liturgy here, we were uh, fo focused in the gospel on Christ teaching about that nothing that enters in a, into a man defiles him. It's what arises out of the heart that defiles him. And uh, no Jew ever believed that, and no Jew believes that today, you know, in terms of what one eats. And uh, we see his apostles in the gospel even balk at this you know what do you mean by this proverb you know people went to their death they were martyred precisely not to eat forbidden foods and in the homily i remembered the story from the old testament Mac maccabees where the seven sons all go to their these horrendous deaths because antiochus the king wanted to force them to eat swine flesh and they went through the you know, most horrid kind of martyrdoms. And here in one sentence, Christ undoes all of that. And he says, nope, none of that. It's not, you know, it goes in your body naturally and it comes out of your bodily body, body, body naturally and it enters into the latrine. It's really what's in your heart and what you take in there that fosters a kind of defilement and foster sin. And, you know, we can get into this same kind of practice where we could convince ourselves intellectually and emotionally that we are living a life in accord with the gospel. And, and we can be every bit as adept at protecting ourselves from allowing the gospel uh, to, up, you know, uh, over, you know, up, upend our view of ourselves and life within this world. And we've talked about this many times before, you know, it's hard to believe that we can read the gospel and not be shaken 
by the Beatitudes or do not resist one who is evil. If someone smacks you on one cheek, show them the other cheek, you know, give them the other, go the, you know, the, go the extra mile for someone. You know, blessed are those who are poor, those who are mourned, those who are persecuted. We hear all these things, but the moment that we come up against that, you know, where we're pulled out of our comfort zone, you know, we have all these defenses that snap into place. And this, you know, this getting back to your question about the psychological element, you know, we have these defenses, both spiritual and emotional, that prevent us from being touched by the, the truth that is being revealed to us in the gospel. You know, Christianity can be domesticated. And uh, there's a, a former, he's passed away, uh, not former, but he's deceased, uh, Father Seraphim Rose, a Russian Orthodox. And he says, you know, we're in the period of the dregs of Christianity that we've moved into this post-Christian age where a kind of nihilism, you know, in the culture has surrounded us. And, you know, basically anything goes in terms of how we view our life and how we, you know, how we live our life and what we accept into our life. And that we've so domesticated the gospel that it no longer has this power to transform us unless we uh, you know, open our hearts and allow it to, you know, and some, unless something breaks down those defenses. We need another Fulton Sheen. Somebody who could get up there with, you know, and preach it clearly without entertaining though. Okay, so where were we? 18. Let your reclining in bed be for you an image of your declining into your grave, and you will sleep less. Let your refreshment at table be for you a reminder of the grim table of those worms, and you will be less indulgent. And in drinking water, do not forget the thirst in that flame, that you will certainly do violence to your nature, and you will certainly do violence to your nature. So that's pretty jarring, and that's like a bucket of cold, cold water. But, you know, to think of one's, you know, getting into bed as a, a reminder to being lowered into the grave or sitting down, you know, at a feast to think of oneself as being feasted upon by the worms. You know, we are food for worms is basically what John is saying. And again, all these things are sobering images, but they are meant to awaken us out of this haze that I think we often fall into in regards to our, our Christian life. We're so surrounded by so many different things that dull our sensibilities and don't allow us to hear the gospel in, in its full force. The sea wastes with time, as Job says, and with time and patience, the things of which we have spoken are gradually acquired and perfected within us, in us. So, you know, over the course of time, you know, even though our practice of these kinds of things and being mindful of them 
might seem to have little impact. It's our constancy in meditating upon these images of having these things at the forefront of our mind that slowly things are reshaped. Uh, and it's sort of, you know, when water hits a rock over and over again, the, the sharp edges are, you know, eventually rubbed off. And, uh, you know, prayer, the ascetic life, all these things are meant to do the same thing to the human heart, you know, to sharpen and attentive our sensibilities to the truth. Uh, but uh, to dull the things, I think, that uh, in the world that would pull us away from Christ. Let the remembrance of the eternal fire lie down with you every evening and let it rise with you, too then sloth will never overwhelm you at the time of psalmody. So, you know, a monk, you know, certainly, you know, it, we've, we've talked about this before, is that, you know, sometimes when we begin to take up our prayer, immediately we'll be overcome by a wave of fatigue. And before you know it, we're, it's lights out, you know, whether we're in church or sitting in a chair at home. Uh, but if it's something else on the iPhone or whatever, we could spend hours, you know, moving from YouTube video to YouTube video, website to website, and not, you know, not drift off at all. But the moment that one enters into prayer, you know, a kind of deep fatigue can overcome a person. Now, so, you know, part of that can be natural, you know, due to you know, sickness or, or something along those lines or a lack of sleep. But a lot of it has to do with sloth when it comes to this the spiritual life. And again, this kind of resistance that we have to, the, to vul the vulnerability of prayer, of opening the mind and heart to the, the light of Christ. And uh, sleep is often an escape for, you know, when a person gets depressed, you know, and so escaping truth or the truth of a trauma even, you know, can be, often be enough to lead a person to spend hours and hours in, in sleep. And spiritually, there can be something similar that happens to us that, you know, as rather than face this truth about our mortality, the poverty of our sin our neglect, our attraction to the very things that lead us to sin. All of these things uh, can, you know, draw us into this slumber. Anthony writes, like the apostles in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? You know, it's here they are, you know, at this moment when the Lord needs them the most and calls them to prayer uh, and to pray, pray for themselves too, that they might not fall into to temptation be overcome by it and they're all out multiple times and uh and i think this is true for us that would be number 21 could be on a bookmark for the breviary right yeah that i think you know we pick up the breviary and immediately you know drop on the floor I've drooled on myself in the chapel at times, and it's always embarrassing when you drop your breviary and it hits the floor. And uh, I've had people shake me in the chapel saying, Father, you know, you got, you're snoring, you know, kind of thing. And, uh, 
and so you know none of us are impervious to this and but very rarely are we willing to do the things both in terms of what we meditate upon what john puts forward to us here before us here but also the various practices that help us to maintain our focus prostrations you know the standing at prayer uh you know if you're sitting in a lazy boy chair it's more than likely and you, you put your feet up it's more than likely in five minutes you're going to fall asleep but if you're altering you know if you're making prostrations if you're standing vigilant like servants would stand and then even in the psalms you hear about watching the hand of your of your master that they're standing in attentiveness uh to respond to the, the sign that their master gives them and so a kind of vigilance in prayer might require that we stand or that we make prostrations and or that we kneel uh in order to main you know maintain a waking state you know we hear the lens that the fathers went to this you know some tying their hair uh, in a knot to a chain that's tied in the ceiling. So if they drift off, it would yank their hair and wake them up. And uh, and so they, under, they understood, especially as those who were seeking to enter into this kind of unceasing prayer, that they were going to be overcome by natural fatigue, as well as this emotional and spiritual kind of sloth and fatigue that will overcome us as well. And, uh, you know, it's, I think it's just not going to take hold of our imagination and of our mind where it gives rise to a kind of zeal for the Lord uh, and to, to draw close to him. Uh, if we, especially if we haven't been fostering it and if we if neglected that relationship. You know, that's the constant refrain. You know, church is boring. And part of it is that our failure to talk about the spiritual life, the, the intimacy, the joy, what is offered there with others. And, you know, if it becomes something where one is going, I think I mentioned here once, you know, my mom asking one of my nieces at a Thanksgiving meal, you know, what, what do you think about church? And she looked at me and she said, all you do is stand up there and talk. <laughs> uh, out of the mouths of, of babes you know it's, it's like all that she could experience in it was someone up standing up in front of people talking and that it wasn't very engaging for her and but as adults you know i think that could be every bit as true for us too unless we, we are constantly seeking in our hearts to draw close to christ and struggling against it no passive position in the spiritual life you know we're engaged in a spiritual battle and i think the moment that we let up on that is when we are drawn in to sloth or negligence let your very dress urge you to work to the work of mourning because all who lament the dead are dressed in black if you do not mourn mourn for this cause and if you mourn, lament still more that by your sins, you have brought yourself down from a state free of labors to one of labor. So, you know, let your very demeanor, let what you wear 
be a reminder to you of the mourning that you're engaged in over the state of sin and the death that it brings one to, uh, brings, brings a person to. And if you lack this, then mourn. If you lack that spirit, that acknowledgement, then mourn the fact that you've allowed yourself to become ne negligent now, that you have to engage in twice the amount of labor to pull yourself out of the sloth and to be attentive to the things that are of greater importance. I think Fulton Sheen said in response to mass is so long, it's because your love is short. Yeah, see, that's what we need a, a Fulton Sheen, someone who can point, put it forward so clearly. Yeah, that the, our love for the Lord would be short. You know, I think when there is love and one is in love with the Lord, then liturgy, mass is going to be something that one hungers for. And that it's going to seem to go by very quickly. You know, I think if there is a lack of love there and a lack of desire for the Lord, then you know, more often than not, we're going to be distracted or waiting for when it's done or looking for the moment when it's done. Let's see here. In the case of tears as in everything else, our good and just judge will certainly take into consideration the strength of our nature. For if, I'm sorry, for I've seen small teardrops shed with difficulty like drops of blood. And I've also seen fountains of tears poured out without difficulty. And I judge those toilers more by their toil than by their tears. And I think that God does also. So, you know, we've touched upon this before that you know, tears might not come naturally to a person and like sweating blood or uh, crying out tears of blood. And, uh, but in John's mind, and he says probably in the mind of God as well, that this has greater value, that one is striving, agonizing, as it were, to enter by the narrow way. And so what is produced out of that great effort has greater value than what seems to flow freely. And so we can't judge simply by externals in this regard. In the case of tears, I'm sorry, theology, this is sort of an interesting one, number 24. Theology will not suit mourners, for it is of a nature to dissolve their mourning. For the theologian is like one who sits in a teacher's seat. Whereas the mourner is like one who spends his days on a dung heap and in rags. That is why David, so I think, although he was a teacher and was wise, replied to those who questioned him when he was mourning, how shall I sing the Lord's song in, the, in a strange land? That is to say, the land of passions. So, you know, a person who's engaged in this labor of love, and is struggling, agonizing with their pa passions, is engaged in spiritual battle, that they're not going to be inclined to engage in a kind of speculative thought about things of God or about theology in an academic way or intellectual fashion, that praxis or practice 
you know, the lived relationship, the lived reality has so taken over the person at that point that it drives out the desire for, for such things. And I think this is important uh, because I, I think there is a tendency in our day, especially in the West, to talk about the faith again and to talk about it in issue-oriented ways or in a very theological fashion, you know, to, and people can become, you know, obsessed with certain ideas and working them out. And, you know, it can give the sense that one is engaged in that reality uh, with one's whole being, but it's really a very limited part of who we are that thinking and having these ideas about certain teachings of the faith and mulling them over in the mind is not the same thing as uh, engaging in uh, what John is talking about here, finding oneself in the land of the passions. And so being more like Job, you know, sitting on dung heap, scratching oneself with a potsherd, you know, uh, because of the sores that the, the passions have caused, the wounds that they've caused, that, you know, a person in such a state is not going to be, you know, having thoughts about theology, you know, or speculating about too much in their life. They're going to be attentive to what is of greatest, greatest importance. And, uh, you know, social media, uh, I think this, this is the, the ground where this takes place on, you know, people love to debate with each other. And, uh, and I think it's pretty clear that it's not Christianity, you know, because of the nature of the debate and the discussion that's taking place there. And finding someone who writes about the spiritual or ascetical life or talks about it in a public forum is uh, it's, it's very difficult. You know, there's uh, the tendency is more to the theological ideas, you know, that, that people want to engage in a kind of debate over. And so we have to be very careful in our day that we don't fall into a kind of intellectualism or become dilettantes, you know, e even about the fathers, you know, what this desert father said and what that desert father said, and, you know, to get caught up in the thrill of discussing it, you know, on an intellectual level, rather than being attentive to living it. It's one thing to talk about the passions, what they are, how they manifest themselves. It's another thing to actually be struggling with them and embracing the wisdom of the fathers. Both in creation and in, and in compunction, there is that which moves itself and that which is moved by something else. When the soul becomes tearful, moist, and tender without effort or trouble, then let us run, for the Lord has come uninvited and is giving us the sponge of God-loving sorrow and the cool water of devout tears to wipe out the record of our sins. Guard these tears as the apple of your eye until they withdraw. Great is the power of this compunction, greater than that which comes as a result of our own effort and reflection. So, you know, there can be a kind of 
compunction and tears that associate with it that God produces within the soul by his grace. And, uh, and it comes in a very powerful way. And so John is saying, allow yourself to run with it, you know, to be drawn by the spirit, to be pulled by the spirit as it takes you along that path. Do not restrain it but also then protect it as the apple of your eye until God in his providence and wisdom chooses to withdraw it, but allow it to do the work that God desires it to do within, within the heart and, and allow it to be un, unrestrained and unimpeded because it's far greater than what we could produce by our own efforts. That which comes to us by, from God as pure gift can accomplish within us in a few moments what we strain to do over the course of years. And so John's telling us, you really want to be attentive to this kind of moment when it would come, not, not then to restrain it or hold back. That's true, I think, in a lot of different aspects of the spiritual life, that, you know, we might labor in the life of prayer and the discipline of prayer for years, decades. Uh, and when, you know, God provides us with the grace to draw us on and into a, a deeper state of prayer, we, we do not want to hesitate. You know, we want to guard and protect that grace that is given and allow to bear as much fruit as possible within us. Again, never to say the word tomorrow you know, when it comes to something like this. I'll take hold of it tomorrow. I'll respond to that tomorrow. You want to allow yourself to be moved in the moment. He who mourns when he wishes has not attained the beauty of mourning, but rather he who mourns on the subjects of his choice and not even on these, but on what God wants. The ugly tears of vainglory are often interwoven with mourning, which is pleasing to God. We shall know this with all proof and piety when we see ourselves mourning and still doing evil. So, you know, th there can be a mixture within us, you know, of tears that are produced by our vanity, that we see it as somehow evidence of our being deeply spiritual. And, uh, and so it's not necessarily coming from God, but rather out of our, our pride. And we have to have this and develop this ability over time to see and discern where something like tears would be coming from. And the very clear evidence, John tells us, is if we continue on in our sin, uh, that there is this mixture then of pride and self-esteem and vanity in it, that the true mourning that comes from God and the tears that come from God are cleansing and cleanse us of the desire for sin and this is where we see that they come from God and that there's not uh, this kind of uh, mixture. Uh, what's the word for that I'm looking for? You know, that reflects a kind of impurity uh, to the metal 
I can't remember the word that I'm looking for there, but you get the idea. Adulteration, alloy, that's right. That there's a kind of purity to the compunction and to the mourning and sorrow when it comes from God and not from the self. It's a hard thing, you know, to be able to acknowledge, you know, if we're still falling into the same sins, then we have to acknowledge on some level that the sorrow that we are experiencing has to do maybe more with shame or self-esteem that we are sorry because of the image that it creates of our, of ourselves for us than the fact that we are sinning at all. It requires, you know, kind of great honesty and humility, I think, to be able to see that. Genuine compunction is undistracted pain of soul in which it gives itself no relief, but hourly imagines only its dissolution. And it awaits like cool water, the comfort of God who comforts humble monks. So, you know, awaiting the comfort that God only can give. Uh, Father Stephen Freeman, who I've often brought up here in the past, he's, I think he's retired now, is an Orthodox priest, but he wrote an article today about uh, feeling like one is a stranger within this world, like never at home, homeless within this world, that they're is a void that we experience within us that only God can fill. And uh, the more one grows in the, this relationship with God, the, the more uh, intense and poignant I think that experience is going to become. Uh, and he says, you know, in particular, when we get to a certain point in life and we've lost those that we love, then you know our attachment to this world lessens but also our longing for the fulfillment that god alone can offer and the healing that he alone can offer begins to grow an urgent longing comes over the soul uh, to be with god and to be with him fully and you know on some level we might not be clear as to where that feeling is coming from. We might just feel uncomfortable in this world, unhappy in this world for a whole host of reasons, but those things might be telling us something of far greater importance that we don't necessarily allow us to, ourselves to see and meditate upon. You know, if we have a, a true longing for God and for a love that only he can satisfy, that only comes from full intimacy with him, then we are going to feel like strangers in a strange land. And there is going to be this constant current of mourning that we would see in a monk in particular that has left the world completely in order to be fully focused upon seeking God. That you would imagine that a monk in the desert would ex experience with this almost in a kind of excruciating way because they're not clinging or distracting to, or allowing themselves to be distracted by anything in this world that sort of softens that experience or makes it dissipate even for a period of time. 
They're constantly seeking out he who is reality, he who is meaning, and their own incapacity to take hold of that by their own strength or ability or the capacity of mind leaves them with uh, an unquenchable thirst and hunger for something greater. And uh, outside of that relationship with God, I think a lot of the experience of depression and desolation comes from you know, our, our longing and keep our searching for, for things within this world that is going to fill that void. The problem is none, nothing can, no matter how great it is. You know, there is no perfect relationship. There's no perfect man. There's no perfect woman out there, sorry, ladies, that are, are going to sort of fill that space uh, within us. I'm always amused by that movie. I think it had uh, Nick Cage, who was in, has been in a million movies, but it's, it's that one where he's an angel, and uh, I forget if it was called City of Angels or something like that, and he, uh, you know, falls in love with this woman who's Meg, Meg Ryan plays, and so he allows himself to fall from heaven in order to enter into this relationship with her. And I think, Okay, <laughs> you're, you're talking about the fullness of life and love for Meg Ryan. You know, Meg Ryan may have been, you know, quite attractive in her own day, but there, this is Hollywood. I think this is sort of the uh, the mindset that we have as human beings that we're not aware of, that we're constantly searching for something that. Uh, can never be filled by something within this world, a sense of lack, a sense of incompleteness. And part of our sin, I think, makes us look for those things within the world rather than, than in God. And, you know, I think when, you know, you reach a certain age, you should experience this in a, a very powerful way. And, you know, I think once people reach a certain age, you know, you, you get this sense from certain individuals that they're ready to go. You know, there's nothing in this world that holds out anything for, for them, just on, even on a natural level. And I think, you know, for one who's been immersed in a relationship with God uh, that has great depth and intensity, that, you know, they're, they're longing to leave this world and to uh, enter into that fullness of life is, is going to grow. And, uh, and often we try to, to put that, you know, to put that off. And even when, when talking to older people, there's a play, was it, it's Henry, Henry II. Is that the one they made the movie out of too, I think? but where it's one of his friends from the pub is dying and somebody asks, should we get the priest? And the, the woman in the tavern says, no, you know, this isn't the time for that. Or we don't want to, you know, create a kind of anxiety or stir something up there for, for him while he's in the state. And I think that's often our mindset, you know, to turn a person's thoughts away 
from what we think in our mind would be disturbing. Whereas for a person of faith to have, you know, God come into the picture at that moment is the greatest of, of consolation and what should give the greatest hope. I remember I, I went to give last rites to somebody at uh, a nursing home and they had called and actually said and used those words, someone here needs last rites. So here I come, you know, up to the, the nursing home and one of the women who worked there as a nurse or an aide said, you know, who are you here to visit, Father? And I said, well, I'm here to visit so-and-so. I'm here to give, you know, last rites. And uh, she lost it at that moment. You know, the very idea that I would be coming, and I understand it, that she had a affection for this older man, you know, elderly man, and the thought that he was dying uh, sh shook her up. But here, you know, something that should offer the greatest comfort at this moment uh, that we most need it, it's nobody, you know, nobody wants it at that point or will turn away from it. I hear this from all the time from people who are chaplains in hospitals, you know, do you want to go to confession? Do you want to receive communion? And often the answer is no. Or would you like the anointing? Because of the, the association with it being last rites, you know, that often people will turn away from receiving the greatest of all gifts. Because we don't want to think about death. Rather, for the person of faith, death holds out also the greatest hope for us, which is to come into the fullness of life. That death has been conquered. So that was quite a digression. Any uh, final thoughts or comments as I prattle on about death and being food for worms and it's funny, we're, you know, comfortable in talking to young people about that. Carpe diem, you know, seize the day, you know, sort of take hold of all the great things and the enjoyable things. Don't miss out on life, you know, because we're food for worms. You know, it sounds, you know, there's something very theatrical about that because, you know, young people aren't really going to be thinking about their death. They're going to be thinking about seizing hold of all, you know, making the most of their life or embracing all the joyful things. But th that's not what the fathers are calling us to. Life is over in a blink of an eye. And we don't want to forget that. Any final comments? Mm -hmm. Very Christmassy group tonight topic. <laughs> okay, why don't we close there with our Father. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be, thy done, will be done on earth, on as, earth as, as it is in heaven. Give us this day Bless our daily bread, day and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those, those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May I want to God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.